for about 25 years. One of the staples of uh, child rearing and entertainment for Christian parents has been Veggie Tales. Those animated videos of vegetables that have a wholesome message, the kind of thing that parents don't have to worry about screening. They know they can set their kids down there and there'll be nothing objectionable there. I was interested when I read an interview of Paul Vischer. Paul Vischer was one of the two guys that created that series and they ran it and did it for 10 years before financial problems and they had to sell that to another group. And Vischer said, I looked back at the previous 10 years of my life and realized I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to act Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. He says, it's one thing to say, kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But he said, that's not Christianity, that's morality. And the challenge there that Vischer speaks of for us is that so often the world comes away from seeing us, being us with the impression that Christianity is about morality, right behavior, acting Christianly. And sometimes that even seeps in and our kids can pick that up. And that becomes deadly because when we start getting that attitude, it rips the joy out of our spiritual lives. And if our kids can pick that up, it's about behavior. They grow up, and when they go out in the world and they hit the hard times, they think they've tried Christianity, and it doesn't work. They walk away. Or for the unbeliever who spent time with us sometimes and walk away saying, I don't see any good news. The challenge that we have, whether it's in our presentation of the gospel or our own thinking about how we live, is how do we understand this gospel of good news, of grace, and hold together that incredibly high calling of a transformed spiritual and moral life? How do we hold together the demand for rigorous obedience in such a way that it does not spiral down to seeming like we're earning our place and undercut the gospel. That is, how do we live gospel as good news and holds together the call to obedience? There are two sides to it, right? On the one hand, we realize that Christianity is more, more than just high morality. Christianity is not acting Christianly. Jesus did not come with a message of good behavior. If Jesus had come with a message of that, he wouldn't have been killed. Nobody kills somebody who comes and tells nice stories about conservative morality. Jesus came with a message of salvation, and part of that message includes salvation from the power of sin. And shockingly, he said that those who are trying the very hardest 
to live by all the rules were no less enslaved to sin than those who could care less about their moral lives. That's a message that will get you killed. But on the other hand, we see that the gospel calls us to the highest level of behavior of godliness. We look at our passage today in this section of walk worthily of the calling you've been called, and then Paul has given us all the stuff you can't do. There can be no sexual immorality, no impurity, none of this covetousness, desire, no this sexual joking, foolish talk, crude language. It can't be there, he says. You don't have to read too much of Paul to say he puts a stress on how we live this out. But when our focus becomes that, lives can be ruined. Years ago at a, a convention in St. Louis for college students who are Christians, I met a young man. He had an incredible commitment to God. And he had an even greater commitment to obedience to God. And he had all those passages down. You'll be holy as I am holy. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I think his favorite was Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he was trying to do just that. And as I talked to him, though, there was no joy. He had lost gospel. It was this for him that the way you create and maintain a relationship with God depends on your goodness and not God's goodness. How do we live out the gospel as good news while still holding together the call for a transformed life? In a word, Eucharist. It is Eucharist that holds those together. It is Eucharist that calls those who realize they have no personal holiness before God to try to live a holiness that pleases God. It is Eucharist that motivates us and drives us to seek the most godly lives possible. And I know as soon as I say Eucharist, for a lot of you, you've been from churches where Eucharist is what? It's a common name for the Lord's Supper, right? The communion. Lord's Supper, Eucharist mean the same. What I suggest is Eucharist actually was not used in the first century for the Lord's Supper. That happened in the second century. But the word Eucharist was used in the context of the Lord's Supper in Paul and the Gospels. The Greek word Eucharistia, Eucharist, was used as the attitude that we bring to that Lord's Supper. Think of that meal that is there. What do you bring to that meal? Open hands. And you just stand there, overwhelmed by the goodness of God, by the mercy, the grace of God. You stand there with gratitude. And here's the first century meaning of the word Eucharist, thanksgiving. 
And the Lord's Supper became known as Eucharist in the second century because of the prayers, and we have those in manuscripts. The prayers before that supper, they always begin, Eucharistumen, we give thanks. The Lord's Supper was the time of thanksgiving, and it took on that name. But in the first century, it means thanks, that thanksgiving, and that's our proper place before God. The key then for our spiritual life, I think, is this idea of thanksgiving. It is thanksgiving that is what motivates us to live this life. It is thanksgiving that takes people who realize that all of their striving before God in one sense counts for nothing in earning your way to God, but yet it still calls us to the highest striving possible. It is thanksgiving that moves to the core of the believer's life. And it is that word thanksgiving, Eucharistia, is at the key point in this passage. It's why I've taken this passage. This is an amazing passage to me. Because Paul is not just giving moral instruction. Actually, what he does is he lets, reveals here some of the substructure of his whole thinking, his theology, his ethics. Look at that passage. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. That is incredible. Paul lists in this section Ten things that you cannot do as a believer. And what has he said against them? Thanksgiving. And as if Paul was a legalist or a Paul were just a moralist, he would have listed ten things you can't do and then ten things you got to do. Or he'd say, you can't do this, but you got to do this. You can't do this, you got to do this. What he does is simply say, instead of all of these sins, and you could list any sin you could think of here, and Paul said, instead of that, Eucharist, thanksgiving. How can he do that? It's simply for Paul, if we are properly thankful to God, we cannot, we do not want to do any of that because that place of existing before God and thanksgiving and the peace that brings, we want to do nothing that will destroy that. Here's the implication that really comes out of that. I think uh, Gary or Lewis would right here say, here's the deal. I've heard them both use that when you get down to a bedrock principle. Here's the deal. I don't know if it's Signal Mountain or Southern preaching, but I'm trying to pick this up. So here's the deal. For Paul, here's the deal. You cannot spiritually multitask. You can't spiritually multitask and we've taken multitasking from, I think, the computer world. We're now on chips. They have multiple cores, and they divide up, and it does all sorts of things at once. And we've applied that to jobs uh, that call for a lot of things going on at once, it seems. My reading of uh, some of the brain research suggests that the human brain cannot multitask. That is, 
you can do this or you can do this, but your brain can't do both at the same time. When you do this and switch over, there's a little bit of lag time there. And what we talk about is multitasking is probably you can learn to shorten that lag time. You can learn to do this and then quickly jump back to this and jump back here or jump over there. You can learn to shorten that lag time, but the brain only does one thing at a time. Well, whether the brain can or cannot, you cannot spiritually know multitask. That is, you cannot at the same time be giving thanks to God while you do something you know is displeasing to God. It's impossible. You cannot at the same time be giving thanks to God while you mistreat somebody at work. We're in tax time. You cannot be giving thanks to God at the same time you kind of fudge on your taxes. Students, you cannot be thanking God at the same time you download a paper to try to present as yours in school. Men, young men, and increasingly women in our culture, you cannot be thanking God at the same time you turn to the dark side of the Internet. It's impossible. And that tells us where... We need to move and the direction needs to be and how we avoid those sins that are so close to us. Our task devotionally is to be focused and bring in a focus on who God is and what he has done. And we keep our focus there until we are so overwhelmed with his goodness to us and living out of thanksgiving that that controls us and we don't want to do anything that would drive us away. It is that thanksgiving that is at the core here of what leads us, motivates us to live this life. Part of thanksgiving, by definition, is that it is response. Thanksgiving is simply a human response to something good that has happened to you. And when we're talking about our behavior, simply thanksgiving is always response to what God has done for us. I mentioned that student from St. Louis, his favorite passage, Philippians 2, 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What did he got wrong? He stopped at the verse 13 marker. And there was a comma there. He didn't even make it to the end of the sentence. And clearly, before that happens, it's clear we're talking about those who are believers, so it's not talking about how you come to know God, but it's living out. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for, because God is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is, work it out, live this out, because God is already at work in you to will, to create the desire, and to work, to give you the ability to do what he's called you to do. That is that working out your salvation is simply living it out because God has already begun working in you the desire and ability. Probably the most significant passage that we think of when we talk about this transformed life comes at the beginning of the section that we're working on in the main sermon series. In chapter 12, in Romans, where uh, Paul says what? Therefore, by the mercies of God, I beseech you. 
and he calls us to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. He calls us to be transformed. But that Gary and Lewis have made real clear that therefore points back to all chapters 1 through 11. In fact, Paul there sums it up as by the mercies of God. Therefore, by the mercies of God. Here is God's mercy. Now here's how you respond. We could multiply passages in the New Testament to do this. We could find passages in the Old. And I want to mention just one in the Old Testament because I, there's so many, it seems, believers who still seem to think, maybe have adopted the Pharisees' view that that whole Old Testament law was about legalism, was about earning your place with God. And I want to go back to the core of the law. Go to the Ten Commandments. If I asked you, how do the Ten Commandments begin? Exodus 20. Some of you memorize it and you know it. You'd probably start, you'll have no other gods before me. I'd say, eh, wrong. But thanks for playing. They begin just a little bit before that, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The bondage. The slavery. Remember where you were. You were in Egypt. You were not a nation. You were a people subjected, a people in slavery. And you were crying out. And in my mercy, I reached down and I took you. And I brought you out of there. I brought you across the desert. I fed you. I cared for you. I brought you here. And I'm making you my people. I am the Lord, your God. I have done this, I've saved you, I've delivered you, and I've become your God. Now, here's how you respond in a covenant relationship with me. It's always based on response to what God has done. And what I want to suggest, if it's all about response, that response that is crucial for me, I think, is that thanksgiving. It is this thanksgiving that uh, causes us and motivates us to live this way. Now, when I say this is thanksgiving, that response that God calls us to, some of you might kind of think I'm kind of messing with something that's central to some of your thinking. Um, as some of you have grown up in different churches and studied the historic creeds and studied them and taught them to your kids. And many of you know probably some of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And you've studied it. You've taught it to your children. And the first question is, what is man's chief end? And the answer is, the man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yeah, it's a pretty good statement. So I don't want to mess with that too much. But what I want to say is when we talk about the glorification of God, that entails thanksgiving. The idea of glorifying God and thanksgiving are there. Those two words overlap. They're intertwined. You really can't, as a believer, have one without another. They cover the same territory. When you're praising God, you're speaking about who he is and what he's done. And thanksgiving is just simply speaking about who he is and what he has done and what that means to me. It means everything. 
We speak about, God, you're a good God, and that's our praise. You are good, and we speak of that. And yet, we turn to Thanksgiving, and it's, God, you have been good to me. We, uh, we think about him as creator. God, you are creator. You send, sustain all things by your word of power. And Thanksgiving says, God, you are created, and you've created me. You sustain me. You give me everything. Those two terms just overlap, and you can't have another. You can't have some sort of unfeeling speaking of who God is, like you're running down the catalog of a theological, systematic theology of character of God, without, and having been Christian, without an understanding of what that means to me. I'd like to suggest that we maybe even see that in that book of Ephesians, what I'm doing here. Paul has Thanksgiving here as pleasing God, living a certain kind of life, rejecting immorality. Paul talks about glory and glorification, actually only in the first three chapters of the book. The noun glory, the verb to glorify, only in those first three chapters. I don't know why. It could have, it fits in the rest. (laughs) And we see it especially in those... uh, at the beginning of that book, in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul just, you know, blessed be the God and Father, he, he just pours out to who God is. And it is a 202-word sentence in Greek. It runs like 11 verses in English. And it's the kind of verse, it's, it's, some would say it's a 202-word sentence, others say it's a grammatical monstrosity doesn't deserve the name sentence. It's the kind of thing if you're a Greek teacher and you send a first-year Greek student home with that thing to translate and work out, they're grabbing for the Kleenex while they're calling mom. Because Paul is just simply pouring out an understanding of what God has done and who he is. And it's interesting, though it's, it's this long sentence, it's not without structure. He first talks about God the Father Then he talks about what he has done in Jesus, and then he talks about the Holy Spirit. And at the end of each of those sections, he says that this is for the praise of the glory of God. That is, three times we get that word glory here, that we might live, and the word is to be, that we might be, that we might exist for the glory of God. Now that word that is there, I'll give you a second Greek word today. We won't charge you double. That word glory is the word doxa. What church word do we get for that? Doxology. The word of praise, the word of glory, of speaking of God's glory. And what Paul is saying that all that God has done is that we are called to the essence to, to live, to be for the glory of God. And so that Westminster Catechism isn't too bad, right? Chief in a man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But it's interesting, Paul, glorification here then clearly is not just our speech, but the way we live. It is going to be a life that is pleasing and that honors God. So I don't know why he didn't use glory in the last part of the book on the practical part, but when we get to the living, it's not there. But he says when he's living, you can't do these things because those are dishonoring to God. Instead... There's thanksgiving. That is, thanksgiving seems to be structurally parallel to what he's saying about glorification there. 
or thanksgiving is the way we glorify God by living this life of thanksgiving. Now, some of you might say, I'm kind of stretching. That's from the first chapter over to the fifth. And glorification and thanksgiving, maybe you're trying to push the point. Let me uh, take you for a second to uh, Luke 17. Remember the story of the ten lepers that are cleansed? The lepers call out to Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on us. And Jesus tells them to go show themselves to the priests. They go and they're leaving and one realizes now that he's been cleansed. And it says he turns and loudly, with a loud voice, begins glorifying God. And there's a verb from glory, doxa, doxazo. He's glorifying God. And then he comes back to Jesus. He falls at Jesus' feet and he begins thanksgiving. There's your verb, eucharistao, eucharist. What's interesting is he's busy thanking Jesus and Jesus says, Weren't there ten that were cleansed? Where are the nine? Why is only one here giving glory, doxa, to God? The guy is thanking Jesus, and Jesus said he's glorifying God. So anyway, we could wrestle, wrestle around what that means about what's happening in Jesus. But right here, thanksgiving and glorifying are the exact same things. As he is thanking God, that is glorification. That is thanksgiving and probably should not be seen, you know, as one of many Christian virtues, but as a central virtue. It's tied in with this glorification of responding to who God is. In fact, you put glorification and thanksgiving together, we really get essentially one concept, one idea of recognizing who God is, what he has done, and what that means for me. And they really come together to see if they have a significant place in Romans 1.21. Paul says, God through creation has revealed himself. His eternal power and deity is shown. And men had access to that knowledge of who God was. And it said, they did not glorify, doxazo, no doxology, they did not give thanks, Eucharist. That is one single concept. It's not that they didn't do two things. They didn't do this thing of recognizing who God is and what that should mean to them. And so inevitably, life goes out of whack. And they move then into idolatry. God gives them up to the desires of their heart that lead, he says, to impurity, which leads to the... um, dishonoring God with their bodies in sexual immorality. Just here at point is basically this idea of glorification, thanksgiving, go together. They are one single really idea, related idea, two sides of the same thing. So what I'd like to say, if you have glorification Let's bring in thanksgiving at the core of what it is, the response that God is looking for. And if we want to move to how does this thanksgiving defeat the urge to sin and reject the sin, we've got to understand just a bit about sin. 
and the seriousness of sin that Paul is talking about, he's not talking about a misstep, a little error in our behavior. He's looking internally to what is happening in the heart that for Paul, sin is going to be this changing of a focus, the desire from God to a desire for something that is not God, a thing, an experience. If you went back to our passage to look at that, when Paul says the things you can't do, he lists three aspects of conduct. And then he lists three forms of speaking, coarse jesting and so on. And then he goes back to conduct the people and he lists those three terms again with a little change. But look at what he does. It's almost like he's giving us a hierarchy of sin. He says, first, there could be no sexual immorality which is then a specific sin. And then there can be no impurity. Every sin fits under the issue of impurity, right? So he lists a specific sin. There's sexual immorality. There is this general category of impurity, which would be anything that is a sin before God. And then he lists covetousness, which is what? It is what is going on inside of the believer that will lead to any immorality or any specific sin. It is this desire, this, uh, you might call it a greedy kind of desire to experience more, to have more. And maybe that idea of a greedy type of desire is why we get different translations. The new, inter- or new uh, sorry, English Standard Version, New International Version, translate that covetousness because they catch Paul is probably referring back to the 10th commandment about you can't covet, you can't desire your neighbor's property, your neighbor's wife. And so they translate that desire as covetousness here. But since it's a kind of greedy type of covetousness, wanting more, you'll find in the New American Standard, if you have that, the word greed. It is this desire for more and it's this desire that affects our focus. Now, he gives three, three types of words about language. I'm going to skip by those. And when you get to five, those three words come back. And Paul just changes the ending of the Greek word. Now, your translations usually are good with this. But now he's changed it from the action to the kind of person who does this. And since at the end of the verse, he'll say, these people have no inheritance in the kingdom, he's probably talking about not those who just fail and sin and repent, but those who are characterized by these behaviors. And so he says, instead of earlier we had sexual immorality can't be there, he says now the sexually immoral person, the one who is sexually moral. And then he goes to the one who is impure, right? Or uh, lost the word. What am I trying to reach? Um, Yeah, impurity, I'm sorry. The one who is impure, same word middle gap there. And then he goes, nor to the one who is covetous, the one who is greedy. That same movement, but know what he does. He adds something else. He talks about the one who is greedy, which is idolatry. It's a significant addition. Greed, this movement, this desire is there, and Paul identifies that as immorality, as, as idolatry. That is, the 10th commandment, to desire these things is a violation of that 10 commandment. When you carry it out, it becomes a violation of the second commandment of having an idol, which probably is going to be a violation of the first commandment. You'll have no more other gods before me. So in a real sense, 
For Paul, every sin is an act of idolatry because our desire has changed from where it is, should be on God, and it's moved to that which is not God. That is, when I steal, what I want is more important to me in that moment than God is. When I tell a lie, what I want to get by telling that lie is more important to me than what God is. And for Paul, the issue of sin is not individual deeds. It is that turning of a heart, the turning of a, what is our desire from God to something that is not God. And if that's the concern Paul has for sin, this heart's desire and its change, we see why it is and how it is that thanksgiving works to defeat that, how thanksgiving rejects that and, and w- wants to have no part in that. That is, that movement towards sin was a rejection of God in the sense it's a claiming autonomy. I will do what I want. I will decide what is good for me. Basically say, God, you're not sufficient. You're not enough because I need that. And we've turned our eyes there and we focus there. And Thanksgiving says, I am dependent on God. I'm wholly dependent on God. And that is a good place to be. And I want to remain there. And God, I know you're good. And you've told me that those things that are calling me out here are not good, but they're destructive. It's recognizing, God, you are enough. You are sufficient. And if I have you, that's all I need. It's almost Paul is this Thanksgiving. I can't say that he's intending to make or we should necessarily make this connection, but it's almost by Paul saying that by Thanksgiving, having Thanksgiving control our behavior, controls us and keeps it to doing those things that are evil, it's almost like a reversal of that pattern that was there in Romans 1. It's interesting because Paul says human beings had no doxology or no Eucharist, no thanks, glorification or no thanksgiving. They moved to idolatry. God gave them up to desire, which led to impurity, which led to sexual sin. And Paul says here, no sexual sin, no impurity, no evil desire because that's idolatry. Instead, thanksgiving. It seems that God wants us to find that place where we should have stayed in the beginning. We live in this thanksgiving before God. One caveat, I've been speaking about this whole thing in human terms, because Thanksgiving is a human response. But if you really wanted to develop it, you'd really need to bring in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Right? That it is in our Thanksgiving is one of those places where our lives become intertwined with the Spirit and the person of God in our lives. As it's only a little later in Ephesians 5 where Paul will describe thanksgiving as one of the signs of being filled with the Spirit. So somehow the Spirit in our life is working this thanksgiving. And, and if we ask kind of how, the only thing I'd point you to go look later at 1 Corinthians 2, whereas Paul is talking about the word of the cross, the message of a crucified Savior, and he says that is foolishness to the Greeks. It's weakness to the Jews. 
But he says to us, it is the power and it's the wisdom of God. But he'll go on to say that this is something that ultimately is spiritually discerned. But he says, we have not been given the spirit of the world, but we've been given the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. That is, it's the task of the Spirit to unfold and reveal in our lives the significance of a crucified Savior. That is a progressive, ongoing thing. There's not a person in the room who has plumbed the depths of the significance of what happened in the cross. And the Spirit over time, is letting us in and revealing and showing us greater, greater understanding of that significance. And as we understand more and more of what God has done for us in Christ, it should yield a greater thanksgiving, which then yields a further transformed life, this progress of moving along. Where we're called to be is at this place of thanksgiving, that we move and God wants to move us to the point where we are like at the end of Psalm 73. But as for me, it is good to be near God. We want to be in that place. We want to remain in that place. As Martin Luther paraphrased that last verse, he says, God, as long as I have you, I want nothing else in heaven or on earth. When we get to that place, God calls us to be there to understand his significance and how good he is. The gratitude, the thankfulness that comes from that controls what we can do and what we can't do. Come back to that communion table. You're standing there empty-handed overwhelmed by God's grace, his goodness. And you're going to have to leave and you're going to have to go back to your home or your family or your job or school or 50 other things. But does your heart and mind have to leave that place? Can you not take that with you when you go and just live out of that? Live Eucharist. Live Thanksgiving. Let's pray. God, your grace to us is overwhelming. The goodness that you have shown to us in Christ, your salvation, is beyond understanding and beyond belief. And we thank you for that. And we pray that you would work that into our lives and empower us by your Spirit to live out of that, we pray in Jesus' name. As we get set up up here, you guys can go ahead and stand. You're not going to need your hymn books. The music or the lyrics are going to be on the screen.